Midsommar isn't just a great horror movie, it is also one of the best movies ever made about living with mental illness. That's from Matthew Rossa of Salon.com. It is one of the most bonkers movies you're ever going to see. And honestly, <laughs> it really defies description. Also, this review from Eleanor Ringel Carter, deeply unsettling, ultimately truly terrifying piece. The pace is intentionally slow, which only helps the horror build. Plus, Aster isn't without a wicked sense of humor. That's Ari Aster, the director. Hope we can get him at some point here in Cinephile. But yeah, I'll tell you all about Midsummer. We've also got Joe Talbot in the pod this week. He is the director of Last Man in San Francisco, which... Uh, avid listeners of the pod know I said it was one of the best films of the year, and Joe is really enlightening and fascinating stories about just how challenging it was to make that movie uh, in terms of the budget and where the story came from. And if you think making movies are easy or not as hard as one month think, uh, trust me, you want to hear Joe's story, how tough it is. Also, in honor of Midsummer, we'll do our scariest movies of all time. Because I'm telling you right now, that movie definitely uh, deserves uh, depictions and uh, descriptions. And also, we'll do the Bada Binge. Uh, season two coming to a close. Uh, we'll wrap that up as well. All right. So honestly, I want to go through the Emmy nominations here first, Joe, since that's nice and topical. And here's the headline. 32 nominations for Game of Thrones. I mean, that is insanity. And everybody who likes the show or watches the show says the last season was a disappointment. I mean, I get you want to go out with a bang, but this seems excessive to me. 32 noms. Um... I mean, literally, all over the place you got nominations. I did like to see Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is a show I watched with my wife, which I've enjoyed. 20 nominations, so that's huge on the comedy front for Amazon Prime. And Barry gets recognized well. A couple of surprises as Amazon Prime's Fleabag makes the cut and Netflix's Russian Doll. Both those shows got very good reviews. I've heard about them, get a lot of buzz, but I'm surprised they were able to break through. And you also got, of course, Veep, the final season there. You would think that will win Best Comedy Series. As far as also up against Game of Thrones, which, of course, is going to win Best drama. FX's Pose, uh, AMC, BBC America's Killing Eve, which I know Michael Lombardi's a big fan of. HBO Succession, uh, I was reading about that, Entertainment Weekly. And NBC's This Is Us. It's like the last show, literally on network television, that a drama can actually get some recognition. Also for comedy series, Shit's Creek nominated. Shout out to uh, a Canadian production, all Canadians, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara. I've seen the show before. I don't, I don't think it's great to be perfectly candid, but I'm happy to see a Canadian show get recognized and those actors I'm big fans of. So it's got no chance, but it's an honor to be nominated. I'm obviously very disappointed. No love for Rami. Was really hoping it would get nominated for comedy series. Um, or Rami Youssef as well for Best Actor or for Writing or Directing, but as a cursory look here, I don't see him getting nominated. I am happy to see um, Better Call Saul to get nominated for, for Best Drama Series as well, so that's good news. As far as lead actress in a comedy series, again, it's going to be Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but I'm happy to see Catherine O'Hara recognized. Uh, lead actor in a comedy series, Michael Douglas won the Golden Globe for the Kaminsky Method, but I'm hoping it'll be Bill Hader for Barry, who was just as good on Season 2, if not better than he was in Season 1. Uh, Don Cheadle's up for Black Monday. Maybe Ted Danson for The Good Place. Lead actress in a drama series. Again, you got to think it's Game of Thrones because of Amelia Clark's influence. But I do hear Sandra Oh is amazing on Killing Eve. Lead actor in a drama series. Thrilled to see Bob Odenkirk nominated again. I hope he wins, but I would imagine Kit Harrington has something to say about that. Game of Thrones. Also, Jason Bateman's up for Ozark. Uh, lead actor in a limited series of movies. I'm pushing hard for Mahershala Ali. He was so great on True Detective. As season three was a good bounce back from a very disappointing season two. Although there's lots of big names here. Benicio Del Toro's up for Escape from Danamora. Hugh Grant for A Very English Scandal. And perhaps winner Sam Rockwell, Fosse Verdon. I've heard he's amazing on that show. 
The lead actress in a limited series or movie. Again, you got Amy Adams, Patricia Arquette for Sharp Objects, and Michelle Williams again for Fosse Verdon. Now, supporting actor in a drama series. I love Jonathan Banks, although he hasn't really done a whole lot this last season of Better Call Saul, but he's nominated again, as is Giancarlo Esposito. But again, three actors from Game of Thrones nominated, including the great Peter Dinklage, along with Michael Kelly, House of Cards, and Chris Sullivan for This Is Us. Supporting actress in a drama series, I'd be so dismayed. Ray Seahorn did not get nominated for Better Call Saul. She's incredible on the show, arguably the best part of that show. Her and Odin Kirk, such good chemistry. And particularly this last season, I thought Ray was tremendous and knocked it out of the park. Unfortunately, she doesn't get nominated because the Game of Thrones roaring carnival. Four of the six nominees all from Game of Thrones. Like, enough. Like, I get it. Fine. Lena Headey, sure. Get, get Ray Seahorn in there. Uh, and then supporting actor in a comedy series. This I can appreciate, though. Three guys from Barry. Like Henry Winkler won for season one, but Stephen Root is tremendous as Fuchs. And the absolute scene stealer, my buddy Mac Benson just watched season one and two, and he goes, honestly, I can't get enough of NoHo Hank. That's right, Anthony Kerrigan is the breakout star. He gets nominated for the first time. Up against Alan Arkin for The Kaminsky Method, Tony Hale for Veep, the final season. I love him because he's Buster from Arrested Development. He's won for the show before. And the great, great Tony Shalhoub, who I met at the Critics' Choice Awards Earlier this year, I told the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is fantastic. So honestly, you can't go wrong in that category. Well, Anthony Kerrigan, Stephen Root, Henry Winkler for Barry. I haven't seen the Kaminsky Method, but I'm sure Arkin's great. And then Tony Shalhoub and Tony Hale. Talk about a loaded category. Uh, lastly, supporting actress in a comedy. Here's where you get a couple nominees from Fleabag, a couple from Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, Anna Klumski is up for Veep. Sarah Goldberg was so good on Barry. I'm really glad to see her nomination as well. Uh, at Setting Variety Talk Show Series. Again, there's no love going towards uh, Jimmy Fallon, just refusing to nominate him. They just love all the other shows. Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Full Frontal, Samantha Bee, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which always wins, The Late Late Show with James Corden and his singing, and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Wow. Once again, Fallon just doesn't get the love from the critics. Good to see Variety's sketch series, Who is America, as Sasha Baron Cohen does get nominated. And lastly... Guest actor in a drama series. I really hope it's Michael McKean for Better Call Saul. A callback to him, although good to see Kumail Nanjiani nominated for The Twilight Zone as well. Uh, obviously, all those nominations will get lots of buzz and disappointment for Rami Youssef and for Ray Seahorn. Joe, your takeaway from the Emmy nominations coming out today? Oh, boy. I really, really, really want Henry Winkler to win for Barry. I don't know if it will happen, but that that's that that's my the horse that I'm betting on. Uh, yeah, the outstanding supporting actress in a drama series, four Game of Thrones uh, actresses up for it. Who knows who it'll go to? If I had to put my money down, I'd probably go with Sophie Turner. I thought she had a really strong season this year. Uh, and you're right, Jimmy Fallon not getting any love. I'm a Kimmel guy myself, but it seems like he's been doing it for so long that at some point that he should like get a nomination right that seems like a likely thing yeah we can get a fact checker on this i believe fallon was nominated for a couple years but then you know shortly after he tussled trump's hair and the fact that he's just very benign presence whereas kimmel and colbert just go really hardcore against trump and they're very more politically savvy it feels like fallon's just kind of lost favor as far as the critics are concerned so i i'll double check i'm sure he's been nominated in the past but the last two or three years it's like no nothing for jimmy which is crazy because even though colbert has now caught him in the ratings he's now number one even in the 19 in the 18 to 49 he's ahead of him i still feel like fallon 
mean, at least get nominated, man. The guy's second overall in the, in the late night ratings war. Instead, they're getting other people in there. But the other part of it is, you know what? Jimmy's getting lots of uh, success, at least with ratings. It's good to recognize the likes of a Samantha B, um, you know, James Corden, I guess, somebody off the radar a little more. But um, interesting to see those nominations come out today. And once again, um, we'll definitely get people in the coming weeks to talk more about it as far as guests and hopefully some of those Emmy nominees as well. I just want to talk about Midsommar, though, Joe. Listen, you're part Swedish, so you got to go see this movie. I, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, and yet I'm so excited to talk about it because it is one of the most bizarre movies I've ever seen, and I think it's one of the best movies of the year. It, to me, I need to see a film which is going to be different. You know, when you watch as many movies as I do, when you're a film critic, you know, after a while, you just get bludgeoned to death by seeing too much of the same old mundane films. So when you get something fresh and startling, you flock to it and you rave about it. I mean, it is ambitious. It's impressively crafted. It's very unsettling. And it's also darkly funny. And I will perfectly admit, this may just be my issue. I may just laugh a lot at inopportune times. My friend Cab will never watch a movie with me again because I kept laughing during the Pedro Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In with Antonio Banderas, a really underrated great movie by him. And he said, honestly, you're ridiculous. You're giggling like a schoolgirl. I also laughed a ton at the film Sallow with my buddy Alpha. That's also regarded one of the most disturbing movies ever made. We watched that on College Street, the Royal Classic Theater in Toronto. They're doing a, a revisitation of it. People are giving that half turn in the theaters, maybe even a full turn towards me as I'm cackling and pumping my fist at this Ricky J lookalike character. So I will perfectly admit, maybe I just that guy who laughs in horror movies, but what Midsummer is all about, here's what you need to know. Ari Aster is the director. He's the guy who did Hereditary, and he is super talented. I didn't think Hereditary was a particularly good movie. Uh, I thought Tony Collette was fantastic. Dark Horse uh, Oscar nominee did not get nominated, but I thought she really stood out. But I just thought there wasn't enough of a payoff, especially with a horror film. You got to have a big ending, right? You got to be able to type the loose threads and say, where's the suspense going? Certainly some good jump scares, but I thought it was one of those films that wasn't the sum of its parts. Clearly, though, I said, this guy's a talented guy. I just hope he makes a better movie. It's about a woman. Young girl, not young girl, teenage girl, overcomes some trauma in her family, and then her and her boyfriend and their friends go to this uh, Swedish commune. Basically, one of their friends is Swedish. This is where he's from. He encourages his buddies to go out there. She needs an escape after dealing with this family tragedy, and away the story goes. And I thought Ari Aster really makes himself a filmmaker to watch with this movie. In many ways, it's positively Kubrickian in the way that he uses the camera and a lot of slow tracking shots, uh, setting up that feeling of dread and impending doom. Um, once they go there, you can tell things are a little bit off, like these guys are a little bit different. Okay, all due respect to you. Joe, a bunch of Swedes here. Okay, not really sure what I'm, you know, they're all wearing white all the time. They're singing a lot. They're, they're speaking in a different language. They have their own rituals, customs. Okay, and then you start to notice some stuff happening. And one of the things that I think is so impressive about Ari Aster is he's setting a horror film in pure sunlight. Like there's never once darkness. It's, it's a... A callback to Insomnia, the great Christopher Nolan movie. In fact, that's taking place in like Nightmute, Alaska, where it never gets dark. Similarly here, it's at a time and a place geographically that it never gets dark. And so it's pretty brave to be able to say, yeah, you can have a horror movie and some jump scares when the lights are out and all of a sudden some crazy whip cam, whip pan and some you know talented camera work and some sharp editing. No, this is broad sunlight when this crazy stuff starts to happen. So I don't want to give away any of the mayhem except to say uh, it is disturbing and certainly unsettling, and yet within that, it's also darkly funny, and I'm not the only one, because there was two couples in front of me 
Both of the girls started giggling as I was laughing uproariously. And then they both kind of gave a look back and said, okay, at least there's three of us in this theater of 20 who do kind of find this funny. I don't know if I'm laughing because it's a rather than, be, rather than cry, I'm laughing, rather than be terrified and scream, I'm laughing, or I just actually find it funny. I can't psychoanalyze myself enough except to say others were. And as I've read a couple of these reviews, and I read that one off the top, people have noted that there is a darkly funny element to the story. What's it all mean? I have no idea. Here's another reason why I love the movie so much. I like watching a movie... And having questions and feeling like I want to go online and read about Ari Aster. What was he trying to accomplish with this film? What was the symbolism of the movie? Why was this character here? What does this represent? How much of this is rooted in truth? How much of this is mythology? How much of this is out of his own imagination? Uh, what other films is he inspired by? All of which is to say, Midsommar is a deeply original and vastly audacious film. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. It joins the very short list along with Last Black Man in San Francisco and The Mustang as my favorite movie so far this year. I recommend people see it. I think it's awfully polarizing. You may go see it and say this is a slow movie where not a bunch of stuff happens and all of a sudden some crazy stuff happens and I don't get it and it's weird and that's fine. Uh, it's two hours and 25 minutes but I enjoyed the pacing. I'm a guy who makes it very clear I don't like long movies but I love the pacing to this. I thought it made absolute sense. I would have taken a three hour film if it was an unrated cut. Joe, I, have you had a chance to see it? Do you plan to see it? Oh, I plan on seeing this. I'm I'm really really excited because I feel like I have roots to it being part Swedish, and I, I I love the point that you just made because I'm trying to think of another horror movie that I guess was shot during the day and just makes it that much more intriguing to me. So yeah, I definitely plan on seeing this. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious what your thoughts will be once you end up seeing it, but it's um. It's definitely a movie that you will not forget. The very least, you know, I just tell people, I'm like, it's bonkers. They're like, yeah, I'm like, yep, it's bonkers. That, that's the only way I can really describe this <laughs> kind of a movie. All right, so that's Midsummer. I'm giving that four Maple Leafs. Uh, as we move ahead here with some entertainment news to bring along as well, Essential movies of the 80s from Raging Bull to Do the Right Thing. I want to talk just a little bit about this series right now on CNN. I mean, I've seen the first two, and it's fantastic. I mean, if you're a cinephile, this is really what to watch because, you know, Turner Classic Movies has a regular franchise called The Essentials, which is a really, you know, interesting way of looking at all these movies. But when you use Essential, you know, that's what the CNN series is as well because, you know, it's a two hours. They did two hours for the 80s, two hours for the 90s, and you're just flying through all these movies. And here's, here's the drawback to the film is you can't go in depth. You know, the reason why I do this podcast, the reason why I read movie reviews is I want depth. I don't want just a, a Rotten Tomatoes rating and tell me Midsummer got 82% go see it. And so part of the flaw with the CNN series is that, listen, if you're jamming in all these movies into two hours, all you're getting is a very cursory look at them. But the reason to watch it is as a cinephile, it's just gorging on all these movies that you forget from the past that you love so much or maybe a movie that you missed along the way that you feel like you should watch. And here's the, the premise of it. It's a really smart conceit. Uh, they will show Marge Gunderson, Frances McDormand from Fargo, uh, giving a line about how she's going to barf. And then you hear Tom Hanks' voice saying, you know, Fargo to me is a perfect movie. And then you cut to Tom Hanks on camera, interview style, saying it's got the perfect script, the perfect cats, the movie I could watch every day of the week. And then you go back and see a scene with Steve Buscemi, and then it cuts to another actor talking about Fargo, and boom, that's your Fargo section, on to the next movie. So each movie is only being given a minute tops because you got to jam all these in they'll do sections though there's a Meryl Streep section in the 80s you go okay let's fire through Sophie's Choice Silkwood Ironweed and you've got you know three or four actors talking about Meryl Streep what makes her special um, but I love the collection of the voices that's the best reason to see it not only are you having Tom Hanks you're having one of my favorite writer directors and Paul Thomas Anderson like it's just cool seeing Paul Thomas Anderson 
talk about Amadeus, which is a great film, which I've never seen. I know it's on my list. i got to see it at some point. And he, he mentions F. Murray Abraham won the Oscar playing Salieri. But he goes, I love Tom Hulse. I thought he was amazing playing the genius. It's a really special movie. I'm like, all right, if Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite director, just saying watch Amadeus, I'm in. And I think that's the way so much of film education happens. You say, okay, I really like this director. Well, this director is influenced by this other filmmaker. I'm going to go watch that other filmmaker's work. And that's how when people say, how do you become a cinephile? How do you become such a big movie geek? Well, it's because one movie leads to another. And that's the beauty of it. You go right down that dark tunnel, and you never want to escape because you're just always finding another movie to love. You know, I, I wasn't huge about John Hughes movies, but there's a John Hughes section. They talk about Breakfast Club and why that film was so influential, why it resonated with people, why baby boomers love the big chill. So that's all good stuff, even though it's movies I don't necessarily cling to. You know, there's a section in the 90s part about Will Smith and the fact he's one of the biggest stars in the world and what he did, what his guiding principle was to make Independence Day, Men in Black, etc. So then those are the films I can appreciate. They're an important part of film culture. And then there's the films I love that they talk about. So it's very, very cool for me when they talk about The Verdict, one of my favorite movies, and you've got... A guy in James Mangold, the director of Walk the Line and Girl Interrupted and Logan, and he's talking about how it's a quintessential Sidney Lumet film and the fact it's written by David Mamet. And then you see Alec Baldwin talking about how The Verdict is a film that inspired him, and he loves one particular scene where Paul Newman is trying to take the deal, and you actually see the scene, and you're hearing the voice of Alec Baldwin. Like It's just it's perfectly put together by CNN. Tom Hanks, of course, the guiding uh, principal, is a producer on it, but we're going to try to get maybe another producer as well to talk about just how to put this together. I mean, I can't imagine when you're trying to jam in the 80s. You're literally trying to go from Raging Bull to Blade Runner to Raiders of the Lost Ark to The Terminator to Blue Velvet to Die Hard. Do the right thing. I mean, it's amazing to be able to do. The 90s section in particular, it's nice when they talk about Goodfellas, one of my favorite movies. You've got Scorsese talking about the fact he's trying to show the exuberance of the movie. You've got a comedian in Maya Rudolph who's talking about being inspired by uh, Jim Carrey and just what a big star he was with his 90s comedies. Um, you know, why Titanic still endures. And I love Ben Mankiewicz, my buddy there from TCM, Turner Classic Movies. He talks about Shawshank Redemption, and he goes, it's the perfect prison movie. And then he goes in and explains why. They've got an evil warden. You know, they've got a guy in prison who shouldn't be there. They're trying to overcome something, etc. So... Honestly, if you're not watching CNN's The Movies, you should. So far, the first two parts have been about the 80s and the 90s. Uh, the late John Singleton is who it's um, um, dedicated to, because, of course, he passed away, but he is featured in the doc. When he's talking about Boys in the Hood, how that inspired him, and how uh, Tupac was going to be his De Niro, as he put it, after he made Poetic Justice with him as well. It's very, very cool. Even Bill Hader talking about Toy Story. He says how special that movie is. He goes, it doesn't matter that it's Pixar. Like, it's just really good writing. He goes, if you want to be a good screenwriter, you can just always watch a Pixar movie, because the characters are so well written, and they're so well drawn. You know, forget about the fact of, of you know, where they're coming from. Um, and, of course, Spielberg is featured as well. They talk about his 80s movies, but he speaks as well about Schindler's List, why it was so important to him. Even when you still watch those scenes from Saving Private Ryan, that first opening 20 minutes, it's so incredible to see again. So honestly, check it out. And um, like I said, hopefully we'll try to get some presence from that series on Cinephile in the weeks to come. But Joe, I'm telling you, when you go through these movies, just seeing those clips again, it makes you reason, uh, makes you realize why you fall in movies so much in the first place. Oh, I completely agree. I'm really excited, especially, you know, movies like, to just to revisit like E.T. or Amadeus, that movie... I, I, I haven't seen that movie in years, and this just makes me want to go back and watch it again. Uh, Blade Runner, Boys in the Hood, Shawshank Redemption, anyone who I think is under the age of 25 should watch these series and just appreciate all these movies that were made. 
completely agree, man. Hopefully check it out. Like I said, we'll talk more about that series from CNN. A couple of pieces of entertainment news before we get to our special guest, Joe Talbot, the director of Last Blackman in San Francisco. A lifetime ordering a record 28 Christmas movies. Oh, my goodness. I mean, seriously, how many more Christmas movies can we need? I mean, I just you sent me this story, Joe, and my mind was blown. I mean, onslaught of films making a lifetime a huge player in the Christmas movie game at the moment. The network that will air the most original new Christmas TV movies. Hallmark standing as the leader of the genre, planning to unleash 40 Yule-type movies on both its Hallmark Channel and Hallmark Movies and Mysteries Channel, with 26 on the former and 14 on the latter. Other networks and streamers have been offering up at least multiple new Christmas movies, have included Freeform, Netflix, etc. But seriously, how many more Christmas movies do we need here, man? I have no idea. I guess I guess not enough. I guess we all asked for Christmas for more Christmas movies last year and now they're delivering. So oh, I we'll see we'll see if they can outdo I'll themselves next year. But so I'll take Bad Santa. Go ahead, watch another 80 Christmas movies. You can't top that. And lastly, before we get to Joe, the Barbie movie is being written by a couple of unlikely suspects. That's right, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. I mean, Noah Baumbach I love because of Squid and the Whale. He wrote and directed that movie. He's kind of like a Wes Anderson light. And Greta Gerwig, I mean, how in the world is she doing this? She's she's currently finishing up Little Women. She's also considering directing the movie. Um, it's been in the works for a while, and it's going to star Margot Robbie. But at one time, Amy Schumer... Anne Hathaway were both attached to star as Barbie. Patty Jenkins was potentially going to direct. Of course, she did Wonder Woman. Now when you get Gerwig, Bombback, Barbie, I mean, that you're going to have a lot of mommy and daddy issues, right? Oh, I'm so excited for this. Yeah, you yeah, you definitely are. I'm more excited about the uh, rollout of toys that will correspond with the movie when it's released. So we'll see how that goes <laughs> as well. Yeah, exactly. All right, we'll come back and talk about our Mount Rushmore horror movies right now. Enjoy Joe Talbot. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Our mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and shopping for them is easy and convenient. We founded Mack Weldon because we wanted more out of our basics and always questioned how something so essential could be such a pain in the you-know-what-to-buy. The frustration was real and our Eureka moment happened in a department store full of brands that dominate our top drawer. Surrounded by a mind-numbing assortment of underwear and socks, we realized consistent fit and quality became a game of roulette. We decided to take matters into our own hands. And so Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Seriously, it's so good. Most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants you'll ever have. A line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. If you don't like it, they still refund you. No questions asked. Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good. They perform well, too. I'm telling you right now, you've got to do it. Check it out. Mack Weldon, it's the way to go. And honestly... Right now, for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com. Enter promo code CINEPHILE. 
Uh, honestly, MacWeldon.com, that is the place to go. Honestly, this is going to be fantastic. So seriously, use that promo code, 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com, enter promo code Cinephile, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E. This is the way to go. Mac Weldon, all of your comfort needs when it comes to the essentials, when it comes to premium fabrics. You heard my rave review of Last Black Man in San Francisco previously on Cinephile. Now it's a real thrill to welcome the director, Joe Talbot, who has made for me one of the best films of the year. Joe, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile. Really appreciate it. Oh, wow. No, thank you for having me. Uh, I heard the rave reviews coming out of Sundance, and then I couldn't wait to see the film, and I saw it in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, at a small little indie theater there at the Claridge Cinemas. So I'm happy the fact the film's getting more and more exposure, and hopefully get to more and more theaters. But um, I read a little bit about the fact, the backstory of the film, and you and Jimmy Jimmy Fails, who plays the lead character of Jimmy Fails, uh, where the idea was spawned from. For our audience who's unaware of it, tell us a little bit about the fact you guys grew up as friends in San Francisco, and where did this germ of an idea come from? Yeah, we had sort of an unusual path in the filmmaking. Uh, we, we grew up together, as you said, um, in kind of Mission, Bernal area in San Francisco. Um, and, you know, as kids, we would go on these walks and we would talk about our lives. And um, that was sort of one of the first ways we bonded. And over the course of those years, you know, teenagers could tell me these stories about this house, this incredible house that he once lived in, uh, Victorian, in the Fillmore with his entire family and how they lost the house when uh, he was a kid. And he, you know, had dreams of getting it back one day. And we also, you know, aside from this, we make short films with like, you know, a group of friends and frankly, anybody that we could like somehow get to work on them with us. And one day, you know, like unofficially six or seven years ago, we started talking about how we could maybe turn parts of what Jimmy had gone through in his life into a feature film, our first feature film. And then more officially five years ago, we began working on it. And so I'm a high school dropout. Jimmy's only ever acted in my movies. This film was almost, in a way, our sort of film school with a group of other people that came on to help us make it. And uh, yeah, five years later now, we're, uh, we're, we're here. Yeah, and absolutely here to stay, I would say. Yeah, I love the film George Washington from David Gordon Green. And watching the movie, Joe, it reminded me a lot of that, just artistically and stylistically, some of the slow motion, um, you know, just the, the use of music, the way they have this almost like kind of a hallucinatory effect that both you and David Gordon Green got in the film. You know, that film's more about childhood and, and young African-Americans growing up in North Carolina. Your film's about these guys, uh, this African-American way of life that's almost being rooted out. I'm just curious, are you a fan of, of that film, George Washington, or do you know George uh, David Gordon Green's work at all, and was it an influence for you? Sure, um, that one wasn't actually specifically an influence. So it's interesting that you mentioned it. Um, for us, you know, there were sort of there were a number of movies, and we would sort of talk about them almost like less in an overall way and more scene by scene. So there were certain films for certain moments, but one really big one was a movie called Nothing But a Man, uh, which is a '60s movie. Uh, and it's just very kind of gentle film about a black couple in the 60s trying to find love amidst all the you know difficulties to do so in the South. And it has Ivan Dixon and Abby Lincoln are this like incredible couple in it. And though, you know, in our movie, it's not about a couple, it's about a friendship. There's like a, a really gentle nature in that film that I think we really aspired to. Um, and so that was one. Obviously, you know, 
Spike and you know Tyrant, what he does for Brooklyn in that film, this incredible cast of characters that you meet, and just the architecture and the feeling of like a place. I think we all watched that movie growing up, and you know you dream of being able to do that for your city the way he did for New York. Yeah, 30th anniversary, do the right thing. In fact, very timely this summer, as you mentioned. And uh, it's funny, previously in the podcast, after I see, I saw your film and I was so taken by it, I started thinking about films that make you think of landscapes and just, you know, they're so identifiable with the city. So you're right, do the right thing. And Taxi Driver or Manhattan, I think of New York. You know, Boston films, I think of The Verdict. I think of The Town. I think of The Departed. I think of, you know, those kinds of films. For San Francisco, you know, it was interesting. My, my producer, Joe, mentioned Lady Bird is a great one because you've never seen a film set in Sacramento before. So it's nice to see Sacramento. Greta Gerwig gives some love there. But but in the case of Last Black Man of San Francisco, which I loved is that it's so quintessentially a San Francisco film. And my wife's from San Jose, so I, I go to the Bay Area at least once a year. But what I loved about it was you weren't relying you weren't relying on the you know Golden Gate Bridge, Bay Bridge type stuff. It wasn't the predictable landmarks, you know? Right? Yes, you'll get a Lombard Street, which is a beautiful shot. Yeah, okay, there's a trolley car used to, to funny effect where that naked guy is standing at the bus terminal. But you're showing a part of San Francisco that I don't think you see when people are giving a sightseeing tour? Was that a conscious effort by you? You know, it, it's funny because it wasn't something that I think we said, hey, we got to show another side, but I think just by virtue of where we grew up and where a lot of characters in the film and friends of ours grew up, it was it was a different side of the city. It was Mission and Bernal Heights and Hunter's Point, which, as you say, you know, uh, almost quite literally, Hunter's Point could not be further from the Gold Gate Bridge. It's the exact opposite side of the city. And these are places where, you know, Growing up, it's like we had friends that had incredible stories, and it's it sort of just I think bleeds into the movie because of of what the film is about. Um, there's a sort of like nostalgia and a sense and a feeling of that that's baked into many San Francisco films, and even the city sort of historically. Vertigo is like so full of belonging, you know, it's man chasing something, and even when you read stories of Mark Twain coming to San Francisco where he really cut his teeth and kind of, you know, broke in as a writer. There's a feeling in San Francisco, I think, that almost dates back to its beginning of people looking back to a time that either preceded them or that they, you know, had arrived at, but is no longer present and and feeling like, you know, things are, are uh, not what they once were. And so that's a strange thing to reconcile with because I think, the city that me and Jimmy grew up in, you know, is in some ways being lost. And that's part of where the movie comes from. The people that made, you know, San Francisco what it was in the 90s, the architecture even that defined the city, you know, it feels like we're uh, on the verge of perhaps losing that. At the same time, the feeling that we have about that San Francisco is something that I think many generations have felt before us. Yeah, I saw one review, Joe, in which they said that the gentrification of San Francisco, another term for that could be white colonization. And it's interesting that the the population of African-Americans, I think in the 60s, without its height, was 13 percent. And your film makes mention of the fact it was known as the Harlem of the West, et cetera. And now it's like maybe 5 percent. Every time I go, I just see white Asians like I don't see. African-Americans. And so I, I like the fact that you guys are pointing out it doesn't mean we're being critical of the city. We still love the city, but yeah, it's changing. It's evolving. As you said, it's, it's a confluence of emotions. You can love something and be nostalgic with something, but still be upset about the way it's evolving, right? Yeah, it's, it's sort of funny you mentioned that feeling because I think that's there's a line in the movie that Jimmy says to a character that Sora Birch plays on the bus. She's sort of complaining about San Francisco, and Jimmy says, 
you don't get to hate San Francisco unless you love it. And that line has been, I think, repeated more than any other line in the film because it's true of what we feel about San Francisco that, you know, we criticize our city because we love it. We want it to be better, not because we've given up on it or because, you know, we think it's not worth fighting for. And I think that's a feeling that everyone has, you know, about where they're from, or at least many people do, especially in these cities across the country that are changing. You know, we went like uh, on a small tour with the film to Chicago and Atlanta and D.C. and New York. And it was and even just Toronto. We just got back. And it's like everyone's saying to us how the same things are happening in the cities. It's like you, you overhear the exact same conversations. You know, the natives that grew up there, the native populations are very small. Um, the, you know, beautiful old homes are being bulldozed. Um, and so I think that's what's hard about gentrification is it's like really hard to distill how strange it can make you feel. You say we feel like strangers in our own hometown. Yeah, you're right. It ends up feeling disoriented. And I can echo those sentiments. You said you just got back from Toronto, which is my hometown. I went back for the Raptors parade. And yeah, it's amazing. You're right. You can love the city. And every time I go back, I say, wow, the traffic's become more overwhelming. <laughs> this is getting bulldozed. More condos are being built. You go, oh my God, it's just, it's unlivable for certain people that are there. And you're right. I think Toronto, San Francisco, those major cities can feel that. You mentioned that scene on the bus and how that's become off-quoted. My favorite scene is where Jimmy goes to the bank and he's saying, listen, I don't have I, I don't have much capital. I don't have much money. You can screw me every which way but Sunday. Okay, I just love this place more than anything. You you can charge me whatever mortgage rate you want. It's fine. Like I <laughs> like I'll do it. And and I said it was so great because it just made me think of like a metaphor of of anything that you love in life that you're willing to do anything for it. Right? It doesn't have to be a place. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be a job. Like anything. You go. I don't care, man. You do whatever you want for me. And there's and he says it with such stoicism. There's no there's no desperation. He's saying it so in such a plain spoken manner like this is the way it is man like do whatever you want but but i love this so much i thought that was a great scene not only for how much he loves that house and what it symbolizes but how much anybody can love anything which of course has its downsides because without it you feel life is not worth living yeah yeah i think that's true i mean i think that it's like it's hard to overstate the importance of like home and what that does for your confidence what that does for feeling like you have a place in the world for your happiness, you know, it's, it kind of bleeds into all elements of your life. I mean, you know, even here in the city, um, you see it like home can be historically and, and being able to pass down a home to your kids, that can be like a huge grounding force in people's lives. And without that, it's, it's hard to exist. Like, for instance, we lived at my parents' house to make this movie. Um, and that was the only way we could afford San Francisco. So Jimmy and I were both there for five years. And, you know, my parents are both creative themselves. They're both artists. So they were supportive of this kind of strange journey that I think a lot of parents, you know, rightfully so, would have questioned them. Like, we don't know where this is going. Is this ever going to amount to something? Is, you know, is this movie really ever going to really get made? Because there were certainly those doubts for a long time. And yet, like, having a place to come home to, we ran a Kickstarter campaign out of our house. You know, I edited a concept trailer that we shot for the movie five years ago in my house, and that became the calling card when we put it online that brought many of our collaborators on board to work with us. But, like, having that thing, having those, you know, being able to go home there, feel the comfort, feel the love, feel that support. So we were lucky in that way, 
you know, in a, lot, in a way that a lot of San Franciscans aren't. Yeah, just a little bit more on the budget, because I noticed the end credits you mentioned, the Sundance Film Institute, I think, helped with funding. I know the film obviously received a rapturous uh, reception at Sundance, uh, but in terms of, of getting a budget together for this, how tough was that? In terms of just stylistically, the use of slow motion, the fact that you really made your film as, as atmospheric as possible. I mean, this was, in the best sense of the word, uh, a bare-bones plot, but you used character in place as, uh, sorry, place as a character in the film. But how did it, it must have been an awfully big challenge, I imagine, just trying to get the budget together. It was it was a difficult film to finance because, you know, me being a high school dropout, Jimmy only, uh, you know, having ever acted in my movies, we were not exactly the most bankable duo. Um, and on top of that, San Francisco is one of the hardest cities in the entire country to film in, especially when you're trying to do something expansive that makes the city a character and that requires all these exteriors and these small parts. Um, you know, the things that make the movie, I think, what it is, it it was, we knew it was going to be challenging um, because I think, you know, most indies know their limitations and they put, you know, a few actors in a room and they focus the film on great dialogue and great performance. But that just wasn't the story we wanted to tell. So we basically spent, you know, four years um with a small group of people, this is before A24 and Plan B came on, it was a bunch of first timers that had seen, you know, the concept trailer that we put online five years ago. And they'd reached out and they said, I, you know, haven't made a movie either, but I really love this story. I, I believe there's something here. And so they became like our film family when they came on. We sort of created an unusual process. We scouted locations. As we were writing, we would cast people off the street and write characters around some of those people that we met off the street. That's where the Candy Lady character comes from, who runs a candy house in Hunter's Point. Um, that's where the mover that tells Jimmy, you know, this, this big news when Jimmy goes to visit the house one day came from. Both those people were people we just met on the street. And so in developing our own sort of strange process, we were able to cheat the devil a little bit and... I think create something that was, you know, more expansive than it should have been given our, our, our budgetary limitations. But really that's a tribute to all the people that just worked their asses off when nothing was promised. You know, um, you have to remember at this point, you know, the movie ever getting financed was a long shot so much so that we called our collective of people who formed around the film at that point, long shot. Uh, features because it felt like this is just you know we don't know that this will ever happen but at least we're learning and you know we're making lifelong friends in the process and eventually you know and you know you've never heard of us before you really have to see Jimmy you have to see him in the plaid shirt you have to see the house that we want to use you really want to show the people the world that you want to create and it helped get us some traction all these little mini projects I'm into the bigger one of making the feature helped but it just wasn't ever quite enough. And finally, as almost a last-ditch effort, we got a little bit of money to shoot a short film. It was based on a different story. And that film, that short film, got into Sundance in 2017. And it was there that we then met Christina O oh from Plan B and eventually our financiers and our distributors at A24. And we had, you know, at that point, built this collective of people who we could go to them and say, look, we have like a great crew that's assembled 
in San Francisco. We all made this short together. We've been in the trenches. Kuli Neil, my producer on that short, who's been working with me for years, is going to produce the feature. Um, Rob and Luis, our co-producers, even our production designer, Jana, who did the short, also did the feature. So it felt like we were all kind of coming up together. And and that finally was was the piece that, that kind of brought all you know the financing in. But it's a strange, even what I've just said, as long-winded as that was, is a <laughs> consolidated version of the process because it just was like, it, it was so many, so much trial and error to get here, you know? Um, so if anyone is, I don't know, listening and trying to figure out how to do it yourself, I honestly say the most helpful part of all of it was just working, finding people that you love, you know, that, that I loved and who get you through the hardest times because you get a lot of no's along the way and it can be depressing and demoralizing but those people got got me through it and together we kind of powered forward well honestly joe all the effort you put into the film i think it's going to be rewarded i hope come award season certainly the reviews have been rapturous you know i read one review it said you can watch five minutes of this film and you can tell it's going to be a great movie and that's uh, such a strong endorsement of last black man in san francisco i want as many people to see this as possible so what's the easiest way they can find the movie i know you're expanding into more theaters but what's the website i know you're on twitter make it easy for people uh, last black man ss is the handle you can you know also find on a24 website where it's playing near you i think we're in 180 theaters now across the country so hopefully there's one near you and uh, you can follow me where i have some updates at technicolor talbot on uh instagram well, it's an inspiring film, and I really, like I said, it's a love letter to San Francisco while being an indictment as well, which is great films can be. They have a bittersweet emotion uh, while watching it, but it, it certainly goes in the list of, of great films when you think of a city. I will look up Nothing But a Man since you recommended it, and thanks for reminding me of Vertigo. Yeah, Vertigo, my favorite Hitchcock film. God, you mentioned that movie. I want to go watch that again, too. That that sequence when Jimmy Stewart first sees her, when he sees her come out after he dresses her up the way his dead woman, I mean, it's just... It's just Ty, Ty Burr, the film critic, said to me, he goes, there's never been a, a better film about a man in love, and your film certainly is a, about a love of a place as well. Joe Talbot, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Mount Rushmore. All right, the Mount Rushmore of horror movies. So honestly, there's no shortage of options here. This is in light of Midsummer currently shocking audiences. I think the usual right out of the gate is The Exorcist. Honestly, I mean, there's scenes from that movie which still haunt me. The the fact that a child's head is rotating around 360 degrees that to me is a gimme. I'm going to also include, you know, I kind of want to get Rosemary's Baby in there, but honestly. I think The Shining has to go on there. Stanley Kubrick's film, it's still creepy to me. I, again, I think I appreciate it so much more just as a filmmaker because of, the, like I said, the tracking shots, the impending dread. Hello, Danny. The fact that you don't get the blood throwing all over the place. Of course, people are paid homage to that. Ready Player One. So I'll put The Shining and The Exorcist as two absolute no-brainers in there. I think The Silence of the Lambs is still pretty creepy. I mean, uh, God, there's, there's sequences in that movie which are about as revolting as you get. I mean, it's about a guy who eats people. I mean, Hannibal the Cannibal, uh, that's certainly getting it done in terms of the horror ethic. So there's three movies right there. As far as a fourth one, honestly, listen, you can go with Saw. You can go with Scream. 
You can go with The Sixth Sense. I mean, Jaws, I think, is a great horror movie as well. But I'll just go with Psycho. I mean, you get the classic here with Hitchcock. I mean, the music is unforgettable from Bernard Herrmann. The sequence alone in the shower is so incredibly cut and so wonderfully done. I mean, they say after Jaws, nobody wanted to go to the beach. Well, after Psycho, nobody wanted to go in the shower. So as far as my Mount Rushmore, there's four that I think are absolutely brilliant. The Blair Witch Project, by the way, I'm not going to put in there, but I do want to mention the anniversary of it uh, coming out was actually yesterday on the Monday. That movie was made for $60,000 and grossed $250 million worldwide. See what you will. Like, I found the jarring close-ups and the snot coming out a little bit annoying and disgusting after a while. But as far as making a ton of money and being one of the greatest hits of all time in relation to budget, The Blair Witch Project is that. Uh, Joe, how do you have it for your horror movies? Oh, man, that that's a pretty strong list. I agree with you that The Shining has to go on there, and The Exorcist has to go on there. So I think the only one that I'd kind of deviate is that I would throw Halloween on there instead of uh, The Silence of the Lambs because how, just what that did for the slasher genre and every corresponding movie and B-horror movie of the 1980s afterwards and how it set up so many archetypes, I would definitely throw in Halloween. All right, give us your favorite movies, horror movies. As always, you can tweet us, CinephilePod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E pod, or tweet me individually, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K. The Bada Binge. And now it's time for the Bada Binge as we close up season two. So there's From Where to Eternity, of course, a great title. Play on from here to eternity. Christopher claims to witness a foreboding glimpse of the afterlife. Polly grows worried he's being haunted by those who has killed. And Tony seeking revenge, bringing Pussy along for the ride. A good episode there, followed by Bust Out, where Tony begins to panic. He learns of an eyewitness of a major crime. Here's the story really delves into more about Big Pussy and the fact that he's a rat. And it really plays well with the gangster movie conventions and what you expect when all of a sudden you expect a guy who's supposed to be one of your best friends maybe being manipulated as well. Janice starts to shine on these episodes as well, especially house arrest. You know, at the request of his lawyer, Tony starts to spend more time legitimizing management career and waste management, what it means. His health is declining as well. Uh, Junior at this point resurfaces because he's with an old girlfriend under house arrest. The knight in white sat armor. Here's a Richie Aprile really starts to show himself. David Preval is a character who is just nasty. I mean, he's a good nemesis to Tony because the fact he's angry and bitter and vengeful and he's just being insubordinate. He gets engaged to Janice. Think about this. He's engaged to Janice. That's Tony's brother-in-law and Tony still can't stand the guy and he tries to break off his relationship with his Guma Arena and she attempts to commit suicide. So then you've got another problem now because Tony is dealing with his own marital issues and speaking of marital issues, Richie and Janice are now together. But there's a resolution there in one of the most shocking moments ever on the show when Janice kills Richie. I mean, listen, this is, this is a show in which you had a disturbing sex scene in which you know Richie had a gun to Janice's head when he's, you know, in the act with her, and then later on, he slaps her, and she shoots him and kills him. I mean, that's one of the most shocking moments in the history of The Sopranos ever, and that came in that second last episode of season two. You watch it again, and it's jolting. You say, okay, normally shows wait until the final episode where something major happens, but Janice killing Richie, a big one. That's The Night in White Satin Arbor, uh, directed by Alan Coulter. And lastly, Funhouse, which was uh, one of the best episodes of season two. That's one where all the stuff with Pussy comes to a head. Tony and Polly and Christopher end up killing him. Um, there's a real moment of uh, pathos there where but, 
you know, Pussy knows the end is near, but he's trying to kind of reflect on some memories and tell some stories there on the boat before they kill him. It's a great episode because it balances the drama and the sadness and the bittersweet feelings Tony must feel, along with the vengeance of killing somebody who has been disloyal to him, but also has a lot of humor because there's a whole recurring gag about Tony having food poisoning from the Indian food. In fact, the first 10 minutes of that final episode are some of the funniest you'll ever see on The Sopranos. Uh, that can concludes the Bada Binge Season 2. We will delve into Season 3 next time around. Plenty more coming up as the summer slate continues. Um, next week, in fact, I'll have a review of Lion King, which David Ehrlich of IndieWire absolutely crushed. He, he eviscerated that movie. So I'm uh, a little more concerned now for John Favreau's movie. And of course, the week after next, we'll be reviewing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's new film, which looks to be a beauty. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.